0: Matthew chapter... Matthew, that's Sunday, by the way. <laughs> Joshua chapter 7. My brain is... It goes, as soon as I'm done with Joshua, I'll wake up tomorrow and do an outline for Matthew. So, here we are. If you're wondering, that, that that's how it works for me. Yes. Joshua chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for... The Hebrew pronunciation, Achan, we say Achan. So if you're from the south, you're going to be okay with that, like Achan. It's Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to A'e, Every molecule in your body is going to want to say AI because it's spelt A and an I. But again, it's pronounced AE. So if I accidentally say AI, just be gracious, okay? So he says, go up and so the men went up and spied out AE and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai, or Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all "'to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? "'Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. "'Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies?' For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them for they've even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they've also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up. Sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there's an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the households by which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarites, and he brought the family of the Zarites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the, the son of Zira of the tribe of Judah was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver under it, and they took them from the midst of the tent, And brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, and still it is still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of achor to this day. Joshua and his people have entered the land. Remember they're called to occupy the land. And remember you as a Christian are called to occupy Christ. They enter into the land supernaturally by a miracle. And they take Jericho supernaturally by a miracle. But now they're faced with a new problem. And that's AI or AE. They're going to suffer their first setback in this new place and in this new life. It becomes a type and a picture of what happens to Christians when they sin. Most of you are Christians. You've accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You remembered what it was like to be born again. You remember how you made a promise to God through Jesus Christ. You remember how Jesus washed away your sins. And then for some of us, you were a little bit terrified when you found out that even as a Christian, you were still capable of sin. And so what happens when you sin... Joshua wanted to divide Canaan. Now, remember what's going on in the text. Since Joshua's occupying the land, he is going to begin with Jericho. He's going to go to Ai. He's going to proceed to Bethel and Gibeon and then Beth-horon in chapter 11. With the southern cities, he's going to subdue them. And let, let me help paint a picture for you. He's going to occupy the land, and because he's going to occupy the land, he has a strategy. The strategy is he is going to divide the land in half. He's going to conquer that area, and then he's going to conquer the north, and then he's going to conquer the south. But there's also rhyme and reason to what he's doing. There are people in the north, and there are people in the south, and they want to stay there. Part of the challenge that Joshua has is that the northern peoples and the southern peoples and the coastal peoples could unite together in a unified way to try and push Israel out of the land. The reason why that becomes important to you is because when you become a Christian, there are forces at work that are trying to derail you, that are trying to ruin you. They're trying to ruin your life, the abundant life that God has called for you. The strategy that Joshua's employing is sound. He wants to divide and conquer, but guess what? This is a strategy that is also used by the enemy as well. He wants to divide and conquer. In war, almost everything depends on strategy and resources. Each battle is critical. This morning I was reading about some of the battles that took place in World War II and how we weren't supposed to win. We were up against overwhelming odds as the allied forces begin to occupy Europe. But did you know that there were a group of Christians in England during the broadcast? There was one particular person. His name was Reese Howell and the 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 radio would announce battles taking place and and it would announce some of the the setbacks and the problems and the difficulties. And a group of Christians got together, led by a man named Reese Howell, and they began to pray. They began to pray God's presence. They, They prayed God's blessing, God's mercies, God's authority, because they understood that the wicked circumstances that were taking place had to be defeated and that Germany had to be stopped and the Allies had to win. And so they realized that there was a physical component, but there was also a supernatural component. And so it is for the Christian possessing the land meant conquering those who occupied the land. And for those of you who have been following along in our study, remember I said this becomes a type and a picture of your life. There are people there and they don't want to leave. And there are things in your life and they don't want to leave. There are things that take hold of our thinking, of our affections and our passions. And so Possessing the land meant conquering the people who occupy the land. And for you to possess Christ means that you're going to have to occupy each and every area of your life. And you, you may have thought, well wait, I thought the promised land was supposed to be a place of rest and, and peace. I thought Christianity was supposed to be a life of Rest and peace of forgiveness and hope. And it is all of those things. But it's also a place of campaign and conflict. Remember what we've already talked about? Is Christian living a place of blessing? The answer is yes. Is it a place of battle? The answer is yes. We have conflicts. We have battles. But remember what a battle is. It's a single engagement. A campaign is a series of battles in a war that must be won. And that's what the Christian life is. It's a series of battles in a campaign that must be won. Aren't you glad that the presence or the absence of any given battle in your life doesn't determine forever what's going to happen to you? Aren't you glad that ultimately Jesus has won the war? He's obtained victory. He he has won the war for us on the cross of Calvary. But you'll remember in the book of Joshua, remember he says, look, I've given you promises, there were terms. He spelled out the terms. Repeat victories. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you, 1-6. Be strong and of good courage, 1-6, 1-7, 1-9. Don't depart from the book of the law. The writings of Moses, verse 9. The spoils of Jericho are dedicated to the Lord. They're to be placed in his treasury, chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. Achan, Achan disobeys the Lord, and that disobedience is going to have profound effects on everyone. And this is going to be part of the lesson. That sin will sometimes do that. You already know that sin can affect a nation, a community, a church, a family. We may sin alone, but our sin rarely remains all by ourself. Sin brings judgment. It brought immediate judgment on Satan in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. It's going to someday doom Satan to hell forever in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Revelation chapter 20. Sin brings physical death to Adam and everyone who comes after Adam. Everyone who came before you. And it also includes you. The Bible teaches that for the Christian, sin results in a loss of light in First John chapter one verse six in Psalm fifty one twelve it, it talks about a loss of joy. Righteousness slips away, love begins to dissolve, fellowship suffers, confidence is shaken. There's even the possibility of the loss of health and the loss of even life. And so in verse one. It begins with the suffering defeat. But the children of Israel committed a trespass. They didn't obey. Regarding the accursed things. Remember what we already learned in chapter 6. When they took Jericho, everything was to be destroyed. The gold and the silver were to remain. The brass and the bronze. But it was to be dedicated to the treasury of the Lord. And it says... And they knew it was the son of Achan, or Akan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Here's part of the point: sin doesn't go unnoticed by God. I'm almost positive that the day. Remember what happened that day. What happened that day? Achan almost certainly was a part of the march. He was certainly a part of of the group of the people who marched around the city. He was one of those people who shouted when the walls came tumbling down. He understood what was at risk, and he understood what he was supposed to do. Can you imagine, after the walls fell, he must have went in, and he must have thought, no one is going to know what I'm doing. People recoil from the image of an angry God. They go, wow, this is pretty dramatic. This is pretty harsh. This is pretty severe. But for the person who recoils, it means that there's something missing in their life, a sense of the holiness and goodness of God. Remember, there's a reason why God's anger burns against sin. It's because of his ultimate holiness and goodness. We have it in an incomplete way. There are certain things, if you're honest, that annoy you. You might hear a person tell a lie or Cheat or steal. You might hear about people who are involved in sexual impropriety. You'll hear these things, you'll hear different things, and you'll have varying responses. But there's even a line that you draw that sickens you, that disgusts you, that revolts, that creates revulsion inside of you. Even for the most hardened people that I know, when I ask them about good and evil and they suggest that maybe there is no such thing, I ask them, do you ever think it's a good idea to torture a child just for fun? You know what? Well, almost without exception, everybody will say, that's wrong. That's just flat out wrong. I did have one person say one day, well, I could see how most people would think that that might be wrong. And I said, listen to to what you just said. How can you not have a sense of indignity, of anger? God has a deep and abiding animosity against evil. And so look what it says in verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bet-Abin, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and and spied out Ae. So far, so good. And they returned to Joshua and they said to him, do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ae. Attack do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ae are few. Now again, When you look at this text, you think, well, remember Joshua sent him out to spy out earlier? This is a new spying, and so what's the big deal? But some have suggested that maybe something else happened here. That maybe Joshua acted a little bit prematurely. There's nothing in the text that tells us they prayed, that they sought guidance, that they submitted themselves to the Lord, Joshua sends the spies. The spies report on their observations. They say, look, just like it's, look Look in your Bible. The city has how many letters? Two. It's minuscule. It's small, like its name. Imagine a town called Littleton. This is a small thing. We've already... Defeated a very large, fortified city through the miraculous presence, through the guidance and and the favor of God. Jericho fell by a miracle. Now, again, I want you to remember. Did they enter into the land by a miracle? Yes. Did they capture Jericho by a miracle? Yes. Some of you are willing to concede. uh, Maybe. That it was a miracle that you got saved. Do you remember your life before you became a Christian? Do you remember how people thought, this person isn't likely to get saved. I've told you over and over again that that's who I was. I was voted most likely to go to hell. Least likely to be saved. It took prayer and the work of people praying and interceding on my behalf and then courageous kids in high school dragging me to a Christian concert so that I could hear the gospel. You might be thinking, well, I was saved by grace. It was the miracle of grace. But we sometimes forget that we're kept by grace and that we enter into the battles, this journey, Under the guidance, the instruction of the Lord, what looked like an easy target is going to turn out to be a great difficulty. And after you get saved, you might think of all of the things that God delivered you from. And so these other little things don't seem like such a big deal. Remember, Jericho fell through faith and a miracle. And it could be that there was a touch of self confidence. There's this reliance on human wisdom. In other words, look, we've already experienced this great victory. We can go and we can evaluate the situation ourselves. This situation doesn't really require prayer, spiritual preparation. The leading of the Lord. Specific instructions from the Lord. And so that's a problem, isn't it? But there was also something else that we do know about. And that was that there was sin in the camp. You you see, there was rebellion and disobedience It had already taken place. Something had gone terribly wrong. It wasn't known to everyone, but it was known to some. And in verse 4, it says, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Think about what's happening in in the text. Instead of fear gripping the hearts of the enemies of Israel like happened in Jericho, now fear gripped their hearts. Maybe some of you were terrified by certain things before you got saved. And even now, there are things that frighten you, that scare you, that concern you. They suffered an embarrassing defeat. I want to remind you of something. All battles are, are going to fall into three categories. They're either one or they're lost. What's the third category? It's a draw. Nobody really won. Nobody really lost. It's like a stalemate. When we win, it's exciting. It's invigorating. It's encouraging. When we lose, it's, you can fill in the words, Depressing, discouraging, disappointing. I'm going to suggest to you that a draw is dangerous. That we have to win, that we have to find a way to win. In Jericho, there was a great victory. And by the way, after great victories, are there sometimes surprising defeats? And so you go on a journey. Great highs and great lows. Heights are dangerous places. Because you can fall from them. After the dove comes the devil. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's in the New Testament. Remember, a dove comes from heaven and alights on Jesus. He is A voice from heaven says, this is my son. After the dove comes the devil and the temptation. Sometimes after times of great victory and great success comes times of great disappointment, but we're given clues of the first failure in the land and it will, for the careful Bible student, provide an insight into our own circumstance. And that is... There are two things that provide a recipe for failure. One is self-confidence. The other is covetousness. These are the twin terrors that feed failure and ensure defeat. Self-confidence is placing self at the center of the solution. Again, it never ceases to amaze me. I I, I come into our parking lot. I'll see our neighbor's sign. We teach you to believe in yourself. I teach you not to believe in yourself. I teach you to believe in Christ, to trust Christ, to place your confidence, your love, your all, your everything in the person of Jesus. I'm not suggesting that there isn't a place for confidence. What I am suggesting is that you will never be the solution to the problem of sin. Or sanctification. Or growth in Christ. Self-confidence becomes a denial of having Jesus in the center of your life. Of looking to Jesus to be the solution to the problems. And so, when Jesus isn't at the center... There is the temptation to not pray, to not ask, to not receive guidance, to just go forward based on your best guess. And so, look what it says about sensing discouragement. In verses 6 through 9, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening he and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads. In other words, this defeat results in an immediate response on the part of Joshua and the leadership of the children of Israel. How do they respond? Look what the text says. He Tears his garments. What does that mean? What does it mean to tear off your clothes or to tear your garments? In the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, this is a sign of deep distress. This means that you're profoundly troubled. You understand that something has gone terribly wrong. He falls to the earth, which is a sign of deep humility. He does it before the ark of the Lord. Remember what we've already seen. That's the presence of the Lord. This is the presence of the Lord. Remember, it becomes a type and a picture of Jesus, but it also becomes a type and a picture of what the ark contained with with the covenant inside and, and the manna that came from heaven and Aaron's budding rod. He places himself in that position, and look what it says, until evening. This means he literally, along with the leadership, devoted the whole day to expressing profound, deep concern over what might have went wrong. There's a united participation on the part of of the people, particularly the leadership for repentance. They put dust on top of their head, not as a fashion statement, but as a profound sign of humility, of deep dependence. Remember that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual and not carnal. The armor we wear has been worn down through the ages. Our enemy has always been the world and the flesh and the devil. Our equipment has always been truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation. Paul wore this armor. He talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. Augustine wore this armor. Bunyan wore this armor. Calvin wore this armor. Luther, Wesley, Spurgeon, Gurnall. There's a reason Bunyan called his allegory not Pilgrim's Progress, but the Holy War. And there was a time when I spent almost a month in India. I took only one book with me. It was William Grinnell's The Christian in Complete Armor. The reason why I brought one book, it was about almost like a thousand pages. And I figured even I am going to have a tough time getting through this book. But it was exactly what I needed in a place of supernatural opposition to the things of God. The metaphors of combat that are given in the book of Joshua are kind of scary for some people. Remember, haven't you heard, well, I thought you Christians are supposed to love your neighbors, not eliminate them in, a, in some sort of tribal genocide. Remember what we've already talked about. That's not what's happening in the text. Remember the Lord says, drive out your enemies. Remember that the Canaanites were going to be visiting punishment because after 400 years of of a, of a commitment to unrepentant sin... of of sexual immorality, of the grossest kind, of taking their children and offering them in sacrifices to wicked deities, that this was a culture that was so corrupt that all that was left for them was judgment. Our fathers fought a revolutionary war and a civil war and two world wars. We've grown up in a land among a group of people that knew that sometimes, in order to deal with wickedness and sin, you have to fight. Paul told Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter two, verse three, "You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier in, in, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ." We we tend to sort of distance ourselves from those things. But again, it's going to require discipline, commitment. It says in verse 7, and Joshua said, Alas, the Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Does this sound strangely reminiscent of conversations that took place on the other side of the Jordan? Isn't it interesting? This is the same Joshua who hears from the Lord in Joshua chapter 1. This is the same Joshua who experiences the miracle at the Jordan. This is the same Joshua that has just experienced the miracle at Jericho. This is the same Joshua that becomes a lot like Christians, huh? Do you ever forget what God actually has done in your life? How He loves you. How He saved you. How He washed you. How He cleansed you. And then you have a failure. You have a setback. You have a lapse. You wonder whether or not you're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. To His credit, even though Joshua's statement is a sign of deep discouragement, he is at least intimating that there might be a retreat. He says, you brought this people over the Jordan to deliver us to the hands of the Amorites. Oh, maybe it would have been better off if we would have stayed on the eastern side of the Jordan. He, he's basically said, suggesting that maybe the only land that we should occupy is is. The land that was just on the other side of the river, and sometimes Christians feel exactly the same way. They want to live a life of less than what God wants, less than abundant life, less than a life of joy, less than a life of victory. For just a split second, Josh was intimating that he's willing to settle for less, for a lot less. And so this becomes a lesson even for you and for me. Do you ever come to a time in your life where you go, well, maybe I shouldn't have everything that God wants me to have. A life of blessing. A life of joy. Of abundant life. Of a grace-filled life. Of a joy-filled life. Of a fruitful life. And so he says in verse eight, Oh Lord! what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth, That then what will you do for your great name? To his credit, he's willing to, to put his problem and this failure and this circumstance on the terms of, Lord, your reputation is at stake. Your glory is at stake. The testimony of the surrounding nations is that God isn't able to do what he said he could do. It becomes the very same conversation that each and every one of you may have heard at some time in your life when you heard someone say, hey, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a believer. How do you explain your life? Wearsby writes, quote, it's a mark of true spirituality when God's glory is what motivates a servant's life, unquote. And I, I think that this is an important point. At this very point, it's where as you're dealing with difficulty or defeat or failure or setback, you remind yourself, Lord... Your glory, your majesty, your your character, your promises are at what's at stake. And look what it says in verses 10 through 18. And beginning in verse 10, the, the sin is discovered. So the Lord says to Joshua, remember now, he, in this position of distress, humility, profound, I'm going to use this term openness to hear from God concerning what to do, hears from God. The Lord says to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? In other words, the time for seeking is over. The time for doing and change is now. In verse 11, he reveals what's happened. Israel has sinned, and they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Pause. Does Joshua know that? Not at this point. Do the leaders know it? Not at this point. Do things ever happen in your family, among your friends, that you don't always know about? (laughs) Are there strange things that happen that other people do that have an effect on your life and you don't always know about it? The Lord says Israel has sinned. Now note what he says. He doesn't say Achan has sinned. He says Israel has sinned. And they've also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. In other words, I made a deal with you and you made a deal with me. For they have taken some of the accursed things, I spelled it out clearly, what you could and couldn't do, and have both stolen and deceived, and they've also put it among their own stuff. Now, again, here's the accusation. Someone has done something wrong, terribly wrong. God reveals to Joshua that Israel has sinned. How could one man's sin have such corporate consequences? And again, we're reminded of the heartbreaking truth that one person's sin and transgression can have catastrophic consequences for the community. Now let's put it in different terms for just a moment. Is it possible that one person's love and one person's kindness and one person's generosity can have a snowballing effect and lots of people benefit and are encouraged and and experience grace and, and blessing because of one person's generosity? The answer is yes. Is it possible that one person's sin can have catastrophic circumstances for a family, for a church, even for a nation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul writes, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. The Bible says we being many are one body. We're joined and we're fitted together. And Paul uses this illustration as a picture of Christ. And that Christ is not divided and neither are we. That's why your sin can hurt me. And why my sin can have devastating consequences on my family. Or on the church. The sin incorporates the transgression of the covenant. Possession of what was forbidden. Deception in the camp. The Lord spells it out. In verse 12 it says, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they become doomed to destruction. Think carefully for just a moment. We know that there's maybe some self-confidence. We're absolutely certain that there's some covetousness. We suspect that there's a lack of submission and guidance and prayer. And now we discover horror of horrors. There's sin. We know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We know that the transgressor is causing a huge problem. And Israel can't stand before their enemies because they don't have any of the resources. They become like their enemies. The only resources they have are their own wits, their own courage, their own wisdom. And he says because they have become doomed to destruction. What happens when we abandon the Lord? When we close our Bible, when we walk away from prayer, when we refuse his guidance and his grace. He says, Neither will I be with you anymore. Aren't you glad it, that it's a comma and not a period there? Aren't you glad it, that it goes, Oh, by the way, and now the Bible study's over. You failed, and there's nothing left for you to do. But look what it says. Unless you destroy the accursed from among you. You've got to get rid of it. It's got to go. We can't have it anymore. Transgression of the covenant, possession of that which is forbidden, deception in the camp. When you possess what is forbidden, when you deceive in order to keep what is forbidden, Almost certainly it's going to bring judgment. And so look what the Lord says. Get up. Sanctify the people. What does that mean? Remember, we've already said it means to separate yourself from sin. And then separate yourself unto the Lord. So sanctify the people and say, we need a radical, fundamental separating from that which is Forbidden, and he says, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there's an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Pause for a moment. What's the theme of this book? Victorious Christian living. Is victorious Christian living going to be a part of a Christian's life when they're holding on to sin and loving sin and wanting sin rather than friendship, fellowship, relationship with the Lord? That's part of the point. The Lord is clear. There's something accursed. There's no victory until what is going on is discovered and then judged. The same is true for us. It's okay for you to seek the Lord and go, Lord, help me discover what's gone wrong. Help me understand what's gone wrong. How can I know what's going on and then... Deal with it. There's a Jewish proverb that says, There are three men who receive no pity an unsecured creditor, that means people who give money without securing the loan, a henpecked husband, and a man that doesn't try again. Here, when he says, Get up sanctify yourself he's giving you permission to say I'm giving you permission to walk away from the failure I'm going to give you permission to walk away from the sin from the rebellion and disobedience I'm going to give you another chance to discover and judge what's happening the Lord is going to provide a remedy Look what it says in verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to the families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by household. And the household which the Lord shall come by man by man. Then it shall be that those who are taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. Now, pause for a moment. What's happening in the text? Do they know who's done this? No. Do they know where the problem lies? Not exactly. They know it lies somewhere among the people. So they're going to go tribe, to clan, to family, to family members. It says... Then it shall be those who have taken the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. The tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah... And took the family of the Tsarites. He brought the family of the Tsarites man by man. Zabdi was taken. Then he brought the household man by man. Achan or Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zera, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now, just a couple of quick things. There may have been two ways in which they discerned this. There was a thing called the Urim and the Tumim. These were gems, if you will, that apparently the high priest could use to discern about how to go. Some have suggested that when they would come to the tribe, then if it was a particular stone or a particular thing, then they would know that it wasn't this tribe. Other people have suggested that it's lots. They're drawing lots, like a black stone or a white stone. The Bible says that the lot of the Lord is in the hand of the Lord. But but again, there's supernatural guidance that's taking place. In other words, God is using a supernatural way of determining how to go forward. In the New Testament, Some of you are familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, the Lord supernaturally reveals to Peter that there's sin in the new and growing church. And the couple in the church wanted to be thought of of being super spiritual. So they put on this air of having sold a great deal of property and then bringing the proceeds to the apostles. They wanted everyone to think that, that they were something special. But they... Kept part of the proceeds for themselves. And God supernaturally reveals this to Peter. And their sin isn't that they sold and kept part of the proceeds for themselves. Their sin was hypocrisy, it was pretending to be something that they weren't. And God judged them. And that's exactly what's happening here. When the couple's sin was discovered, they both wound up dead. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, that great fear fell upon the church. The book of Acts says that their story began with deception and then discovery and then death, just like here. And so look what it says in verse 19. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, I took them, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Achan's confession is a kind of anatomy of sin. Look at the verbs. I saw, I wanted it, I coveted, I took it, and I hid it. This is exactly the pattern that takes place in a careful reading of the Bible. In Genesis, when Eve is in the garden, she sees, she wants, she takes... She sees, she desires, she takes it, she eats it, and then she gives it to her husband. It's the pattern of sin in the stories of Lot, and Samson, and David, and Judah, and Judas, Iscariot. They see it, they want it, they take it, and then they hide it. The diagnosis and the prognosis of sin is given in James chapter 1 verse 14. Each person is tempted, tested, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's finally full grown, brings forth death. The sin isn't in the test. The sin is yielding to the test. Now think about it. Let's go back in time. Achan is one of the soldiers. He's of the tribe of Judah. Which is the first tribe. To cross over the wall. Can you imagine? He's in a particular place. At a particular time. He has to be in exactly the right place. At exactly the right time. And he sees something. It's a Babylonian garment. This tells me too. That there's extensive trade. That's taking place between Babel. And, and Babylon in this place. But think about it. It's from For most people, sin begins with what you see. Think about all of the times in your life where you've said to yourself, I want it. You see it. And you want it. He sees it. And he wants it. Now think carefully. Was the fruit in the garden forbidden to Eve? Yes. Were these garments and gold forbidden to this man? Yes, the outward object has no power. It isn't the fruit that has power. It isn't even the gold and the garments that have power. It's what's inside of us that has the power to create within us something that is wrong. And we will either submit to the curiosity and the lust or will walk away from it. And so again, remember Achan's sin is twofold. He doesn't simply take what is forbidden. But the moment that he takes what is forbidden, he robs God. How do we know that? Because those are the things that were set aside. For the Lord. It may come as a shock and as a surprise to you. But the moment that you accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You aren't your own. Remember, you were bought with a price. Not with things like gold and silver, but the precious blood of Jesus. You see, you actually don't belong to yourself. The Bible says, for me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. You belong to the Lord. In the very act when Achan takes it, he from that which was dedicated to the Lord's treasury. In verse 22, it says, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in the tent with the silver under it and they took from the midst of the tent. They brought it to Joshua and all the children of Israel. They laid it out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel With him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything that he had. They brought it to the valley of Achor. Achor is a Hebrew word that means trouble. This place became known as the place of trouble. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it's talked about again in another mention. It says, quote, I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Akor, the place of trouble, as a door of hope, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. In other words, in the book of Hosea, this valley, this place of trouble is going to become a place of hope. It's not a place of hope for Akan. It's a, it's a valley of judgment for him. The valley of trouble will one day become a door of hope. In what way? The trouble Israel experiences will one day become the door of restoration. Let me put it another way Is Jesus going to trouble Israel? But is Jesus going to become the door of hope for Israel? There may have been a time in your life where Jesus was a big, fat, stinking drag. He was nothing but trouble. Jesus? Your husband, your wife gets saved, your children get saved, something happens, life changes... This Jesus thing and this Christianity thing seems like something that's going to deeply divide the family. And then he becomes a door of hope. The children of Israel have experienced great, profound trouble in rejecting Christ. But one day Israel will return to Christ and find in Jesus hope. And the same sin that troubles you could become the very door of hope where God shows up and he forgives you and he gives you grace and he gives you mercy. It's okay to ask yourself this question about what's troubling you. Is there a sin that's easily besetting you? In verse 25, it says, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire. Think about this. They're killed with stones and then with their dead bodies are placed in a heap and then they're burned with fire until they become ash. It says, then they raised a great heap of stones that still stands to this day. By taking what was cursed, Achan became a curse. Now, for some of you who are disturbed by this radical dealing with sin, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Clearly, Achan has done something wrong, but what about his wife? What about his children? What about his dog, his cat, his donkey, his sheep? What did they ever do? Why are they punished? Let me ask you again. Does one person's sin sometimes affect the whole family? Yes. But there's something else. Does mom and the children know that the wedge of gold, the cash of silver, and the Babylonian garment is buried in their tent? If I came to your house and I tore out the carpet or or the board or whatever, and I dug a hole in your living room, and I said, look, I just need to put some stuff, I need to stash it at your house for a little while. How many of you would be sort of aware of that? It's going to be hard to go into your house and stash my stuff at your house and you not know about it. Now, I'm willing to concede that you might have a son or a daughter, an uncle or an aunt, a friend who can come to your house and hide their drugs and hide their paraphernalia and hide stuff. But what if Aiken's family is complicit? And compliant Henry Ward Beecher said quote a man who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good and a man that does not know how to be shaken in his heart's core with indignation over other things evil is either a fungus or a wicked man The Bible's answer in part is you knew this was wrong Well, why does everyone have to die? Why burn them? I want to remind you of something else that you might have already forgotten in the chapter. How many people died because of Akan's rebellion and disobedience? Anybody who read the beginning of the chapter, do you remember what it said in verse 5? How many people died? 36 people are dead. They're dead. There's 36 widows. There's 36 families, children without their father. By the way, do you think the death of 36 people is a fairly significant crime? Now, I want you to pause for just a moment. Because more of you, some of you, I shouldn't say, some of you might be more upset over the fact that 36 people died than he snuck a piece of gold, a piece of silver a great suit from the men's warehouse. But you begin to understand the point. Remember, he possesses that which is forbidden. Which actually belongs to God. His rebellion and his disobedience has resulted in people getting hurt very, very badly. I'm going to suggest to you that he didn't just steal the goods, but his whole family becomes complicit in the crime. And they're judged for their sin. In Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen, we read, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces finds mercy. And you might be thinking, well, well wait a minute. Achan didn't receive mercy. He confessed his sin. It's true. He did confess his sin. But only after it was revealed. By the way, do you have more mercy for the person who says... I did this, and it was wrong, and I'm so sorry. Versus you having to find out, you did this, it was wrong. Which is better, by the way? Which is the one that's going to generate the most amount of mercy, and which is going to generate the most amount of judgment? Don't hide your sin. But guess what's different for you and for me? We can repent of our sin. The Bible says in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, that means we agree with God about our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember in the book of Numbers, it says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Joshua suffered defeat. David will suffer defeat. Peter will suffer defeat. Mark will will suffer defeat. But Joshua's going to attack again. So what was the cause of failure? Sin. In this instance, maybe a little self-confidence. Certainly a secret sin. Certainly covetousness. What are the consequences of sin? Discipline and sometimes death. Death. What's the remedy for sin? A confrontation with the Lord. Confession. Repentance. Restoration. Because remember, God has a plan. God has a plan. It, in this particular instance, it is a co- it's a corporate and cooperative plan in order for God to a- accomplish His mission, which is to bring Jesus into the world so that you can be saved. God also has a plan for you. Almost certainly, it involves the people closest to you and the future that's been assigned for you. God wants you to live abundant and victorious. But secret sin can't be a part of your life if you want to experience Glorious Christian living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time, for grace and mercy. Lord, reading these things can be really hard. It's hard for us to understand all that you understand. To see all that you see. To look at both the intended and the unintended consequences to see all of the pain and all of the sorrow that sin brings. And yet, Lord, we're also grateful for the grace and the mercy and the love that comes when we trust Jesus, when we place our confidence in him, when we seek guidance and grace as we make important decisions about how to honor you. And so again, Lord, again we pray for wisdom and grace as we have to make hard choices, difficult decisions, all the while wanting to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.